0: Hello and welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Heartless. And I'm your other host, Natalie. Today is episode 7 of our podcast, which, wow, I can't believe it's episode Episode 7 already. Yes. Already. It's crazy. Wow. So this is the second episode in season 2, which is all about
1: the Brothers War. Today we are recapping what happens in track 1, episode 2, titled The End, part 2, by Miguel Lopez, as well as track 2, episode 2 titled Antiquities by Reinhard Suarez. Join us
0: as we head into the multiverse. So a lot happened last episode. If you're just tuning in, I highly recommend you go back and you listen to season one because these stories are connected. But for those of you who have been following along with us, Natalie's going to give us a quick recap of what we talked about in the last episode to set the stage for what we're going to dive into today. So in episode six of our podcast,
1: we began the story of The Brothers War, which has two tracks with five story episodes each. Track 1 takes place 4,000 years into the past, where in episode 1 of Track 1, we were introduced to a character named Kayla Bin Krug as she was trying to rebuild a city called Penragon. Now, Penragon is the last sanctuary after an event referenced as the Cataclysm, which is none other than the Brothers' War. The aftermath of this war, which was five years ago at the start of Track 1, utterly decimated the landscape of Dominaria. Kayla, Queen Regent of Penragon, struggles to keep her people fed and warm as the world had literally ended. A huge migrant crusade approached the gates of Pentagon, led by a radical named Radic, whose sole purpose was to rid the world of Urza's war machines. They had such hatred for anything machine-related that Pentagon's docile civils, which were non-violent constructs built by Tano's to help rebuild the city, were considered demons to this crusade, and their priests attacked them in the streets. The unrest quickly got out of hand, and at the end of the chapter, Kayla Binkrug Krug had to rally her militant forces to defend her city against the crusade. Meanwhile, track two takes place in the present day, and our planeswalker friends Teferi, Sahili, Kaya, and Joda, among others, are inside Urza's tower which they have used as a safe house against the impending Phyrexian invasion. All our planeswalkers meet at a war council inside this tower, where, thanks to Vivian's insight from Capenna and Kaya's understanding of Kaldheim, they conclude that Elish Norn plans to use the World Tree in order to Phyrexianize the entire multiverse under her command. Now our planeswalker friends are trying desperately to unravel the secrets of how to destroy the Phyrexians before it's too late. And they know the answer lies in the past. Sahili, a gifted artificer, is busy creating a literal time machine that combined with Teferi's planeswalker magic could take him back in
0: time. So in track one, we left off with Caleb and Krug having to rally her militant forces in Penrigan. Let's go back once again to 4,000 years into the past to find out what happens. All right, so if you remember at the end of last episode, there was a siege happening in Pinragon. So essentially all of the Tulls, which are a religious group, had come into the city and their religion is essentially machines are bad and they don't want anything to do with them. So they come into the city and they really cause some havoc. So immediately there are there's bloodshed and this leads to a complete siege of Pinragon. Now, Kayla's militant forces, which include newly armed civils, which again are the those machines that Kayla and Thanos had worked to make docile and helpful. They are basically working together against the Crusaders. And right now they're winning.
1: So we partway through the siege, we switched to Thanos's perspective. And he's in his workshop office where he's poring over Urza's old machine designs. And he's ruminating and pondering a little bit. And he thinks that machines by design are hostile. And this is something of a surprise because last episode, Thanos was trying to convince Kayla that he could create docile machines. But now he's having a little bit of an internal retrospective here that he thinks that anything of Urza's design are meant to destroy. And even the civils that he just helped create are Urza's designs, therefore not docile like we had left to believe. And I mean, he's right. Those civils are now fighting against the Crusaders. They have literally been turned into war machines when, you know, they were meant to be peaceful, and now they are literal made militia war machines. And they're killing people. I mean, Thanos is struggling with a ton of guilt and regret and shame that this all happened. And just when he's, you know, retrospecting all of this, Thanos' workshop just goes up in flames. And we see Thanos tuck old books into his cloak like, smile into the dark and then just disappear while the fire destroys the workshop.
0: What I find particularly interesting about this scene is that he rips some pages out of a book and they're nothing that is particularly useful. It is purely sentimental. It's his first ever toy designs because he used to be a toy maker. And I found that really interesting. Like, he's taking this memento... Uh, but he's leaving potentially, or, you know, as, as this fire happens. We don't really know, right? Like, we don't actually know what happens to him here. But um, it's really alluded to that he's the one that's starting the fire, that he's having second thoughts and he's leaving. And so yes. he's tearing out these pages is definitely evidence to support that.
1: Yeah, it seems like he's kind of given up, right? I'm I'm kind of speculating here, you know, just from reading this scene. But it seems like he's given up on machines, right? He He's kind of given up on... On being able to create a better world through machines. And he's kind of stepping away from it all, right? If he's
0: literally torching it, then, you know, it's it's kind of a shift in Thanos' character. Definitely. I mean, he's lamenting about the fact that he helped Urza at all, that he became a powerful artificer at all. He's thinking to himself, you know, if I had just tinkered with other people's designs, if I had just stayed doing what I was doing before maybe this chaos wouldn't have happened, or at least he wouldn't have, selfishly, he's really thinking he wouldn't have felt the shame and the guilt of it. So he's definitely having some second thoughts here. He's definitely rethinking um, some things in his life. Now, a short while later, Kayla meanders the streets after the siege. Now, Pendergon has been victorious against the Talite Crusaders, but there is destruction in the streets. There's decimation. And She examines Thanos' workshop and concludes he started the fire and escaped. And she's furious. I mean, she keeps just saying, He's left us with nothing, right? Thanos betrayed her. Big time. He didn't leave behind any of the designs that they'd been working on up for, these, for these civils, these docile war machines. And so there's nothing she can do to rebuild any of them. Plus, you know, the workshop was the workshop where these were being created. There's It's not like he just burned down a couple papers. He burned down these machines as well, from what I'm picking up on this. And so everything has been destroyed. Yeah, absolutely everything of this workshop is
1: just the way that she describes what the factory looks like now in the aftermath of the siege, right, is just like charred remains, right? There's not even a building left where the factory once stood so everything went down with it and and Thanos you know Thanos definitely started this and that's totally a betrayal from what Thanos had promised her but time goes on and I quote here Pentagon's end came 10 years after the siege. So we're left with this really somber sentence right after the siege, and the descriptions of the city are, over time, just literally succumbing into ruin over the next few years. It was a dying age. People were starving in the streets, and just this merciless, ruthless cold descended upon them. There are descriptions of oceans completely freezing over, and there was nothing to eat or hunt, and people actually would move out into the frozen ocean to actually create new buildings over the frozen ocean so that they could be closer to where they could fish, right? Because it was just, everything was freezing over. And so literally the landmass had changed. It's just, it was a complete change in the way that the city operated. And the civils, the docile machines that Kayla and Thanos had created, literally froze in the street and became pillars of ice, never to move again. And Kayla just watched her city slowly crumble apart and die. It is seriously so sad. There's just this pages of hopeless, dark, cold, post-apocalyptic struggle. It's it's just, it was bleak to read this. And it made me really wonder what the future of these people really were going to be. Were they going to make it? You know, and, and with that sentence, Pentagon's end... You know, I, at this point, I was really wondering whether Kayla and the others were actually going to make
0: it at all. Yeah. And I think Kayla's feeling the same way because she's really succumbing to her despair as well. Outwardly, she's remaining composed. She is being the person that the people need her to be. But over time, she sought solitude. She'd often walk out of the city to scream and cry to herself. There's actually multiple passages of her screaming into her pillow. And she it's just grief, just pure grief. Everything You know, when Thanos left, she kind of has this mention of everything of her old life was kind of gone at that point, which was meant that she could heal. But it also was a new wound. And she's really struggling with this. So many years passed through this and essentially brutal survival took over. And the whole of Penragan seemed to shut down and embrace the cold. So... Kayla's scouts would return from scouting the outer reaches of the plain, shivering and shaking, declaring the world was literally ending. And there were stories about mountains erupting like volcanoes of ice. The end was coming for them, and Kayla could only watch it slowly creep toward Pentagon. So it was in this very dark, very dreary time that Kayla,
1: in her most vulnerable and her most dire, when she literally wanted to give up, discovered... She had fire magic. She sparked. Yeah, she sparks. So in this, in this like absolutely abyssal time, right? In in the midst of the darkness and the cold. And she was on the floor crying and screaming and wondering if she was ever going to make it. Of like an abandoned house outside the city. She's totally alone on the floor thinking that this is it. This is the end. This is how I go. And suddenly her fingers formed sparks and she could ignite herself in flame. It's like this flame that Kayla discovers within herself is also like a a beacon of her own resolve too. A new hope was sparked within her. And I I mean, like cue montage music here because Kayla, after discovering this, she has like a new determination, right? It's like, she's almost like reborn from this. She, She goes back to the city and she pours over books and scrolls and ancient writings about how to control and use her magic. She suddenly has hope again and she
0: disciplines herself and learns how to control it. Which is really cool because just before this, it really describes what I identify as a state of depression. She is not enjoying anything she's doing. She's got this time on her hands. She's got money. She's got the funds. She's like, I'm going to learn how to use a sword. She does that. It doesn't bring her joy. I'm going to learn you know I'm gonna do art I'm gonna do all these different hobbies all these different things to try to find some new meaning in life and some you know she's this this hope for everybody else but she's not got anything that's really pulling her forward until this moment when she sparks she gets this magic and she begins training and it's so inspiring and she's just able to you know find the thing that is able to pull her out of the absolute depths of her own sorrow and grief yeah there's definitely
1: a tone shift the moment that Kayla literally sparks. Right, that she finds this magic within herself and that she is a, you know, she has she's a fire mage, essentially, like we've seen with some of our planeswalker friends like Jaya. Right. And she's it's like the fire is reignited within her. And it's like I was literally reading this these pages of depth and despair and depression for Kayla. And I was like about to cry. And then I just like let out this breath of relief hearing Kayla discover her magic. And she's reignited. And and I was just like, oh, OK, maybe we can get through this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really an inspiring moment. And not long after this her scouts begin to return with better news. There are new lands on the other side of the mountain that are still green. They are untouched by the war and life is thriving there. This is a place where they could find a new home if only they can get there. So Kayla and the civilians of Pendergon prepared for a mass exodus in search of salvation in a faraway land. Many of the surviving civilians, as soon as they heard of these mystical Greenlands across the mountains, they took off in caravans straight away. And others, maybe too stubborn or too afraid to leave, huddled or unable to leave, huddled in their huts and refused to go. So Kayla was one of the last to leave the city. And she bids it farewell.
1: And the trek through the mountains, so we follow Kayla and this last caravan out of Penragon through the mountains to find this mystical green land somewhere in the depths of Dominaria that she's never been. But the trek takes its toll the trek itself was brutal and kayla loses many of her people but after many many months of travel they do make it to the other side and the scouts were right green lush grasses of the meadows greet them of open prairies it's a paradise so although the brothers war had not completely decimated this place we still see some of the after effects of it That are a little bit familiar. So if you remember the Talites, the the crusaders that Kayla had been at siege with earlier in this episode, they also found sanctuary here. They are prolific here. They have kind of taken over the cities here almost. Um, And so everywhere she turns, she sees these Talites, these crusaders. And I quote here, there were towns and cities and there was something else, a story tender and cruel of a man and a flying machine. In the western sky.
0: Now, this story is about Harbin, which is Kayla's son. She had lost her son to the Brothers' War, something that was one of the sources of her grief. It had devastated her for years since it happened. And the hope that Harbin might still be alive somewhere in the depths of Dominaria drives her forward to this new land, too. In fact, it keeps her wanting to travel further, even after much of her people had found salvation in a city called New Yosha. And that's Y O T I A, Yosha.
1: So I quote here what New Yosha looks like. New Yosha welcomed them as Pentagon once welcomed those who came to its gates. Most of Kayla's people settled here, finding the city a warm and familiar comfort. Kayla nearly did as well. She was tired, and New Yosha reminded her of her youth. The scents, the food, the music, the language. Even the buildings,
0: though they were simple wooden affairs, were Yoshan through and through. The thought of finding her son Harbin compels her to continue west, Dead or alive, ghost or spirit, Kayla resolved to cross the continent to learn the truth. Strange things were happening in Terasir. With Thanos, she had seen the dead return. Within herself, and Jarsil, she had seen magic. The old world was dying, remembering, trembling. A new world was being born. So before Kayla continues her journey, there is a
1: heartfelt goodbye, however, in New Yosha. And her grandson, Jarsil, also wishes to travel beyond New Yosha. In fact, his journey is leading him to a school of magic somewhere far away, established by two magical professors, an artificer named Nod and a mage named Duck. That sounds familiar. (laughs) That's because it should be. Mishra's most trusted accomplice in the war was named Ashnod. And Kayla hints that Duck might actually be Thanos, who was Urza's most trusted accomplice, and who had disappeared after setting the factory on fire in Pentagon after the siege earlier in this episode. Okay, okay, that's interesting. So nod and duck. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> so Kayla urges Jarceel to continue his studies. She says, go north. If there are teachers greater than me, seek them out. So Jarsil was also a mage, and so he clearly wants to pursue that and kind of find hope just like Kayla did in his magical abilities, right? And he wants to study to become a great mage. And this is one of the first instances of a school of magic ever kind of existing in Dominaria before. And so the hope that this might bring for Jarcil, I mean, I understand that, right? To continue your education and to discover the power within you, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful motivation to connect. To continue to further yourself, right? So as hard as as it is to say goodbye, I'm glad that Jarsil is going.
0: Ooh, which kind of makes me think that that could be like the beginnings of Strixhaven, which is, of course, a magical school on a plane called Arcavios, which is a set that came out a little while ago and really explores, you know, magical people teaching other magical people how to use their magic and it's really cool and it's really just this like awesome place for people to go and study. So if that's what he's found or even if it's even close to that, then yeah, he's choosing the right path. He's choosing to go learn to not only control his magic but utilize it in a way that is beneficial for him or society or whatever it is he wants to do with his life. So good job, Jarsil. Exactly. Exactly. Like we're
1: seeing to me, like we're seeing the very beginnings of what it means to teach others how to do magic, right? Yes. Kayla had to teach herself, right? Because a school doesn't exist to teach mages how to be a mage, right? That doesn't exist yet, but we're seeing the beginnings of it, right? So that's kind of cool where this could be the beginning of something great for Jarsil. And so,
0: yeah. Yeah, like Chandra learned her magic from like basically a group of monks that had followed the teachings of Jaya. That wasn't a formal school, right? That was something she had to go seek out on her own. That's not just, okay, I'm... Whatever year old you are when you start at Strixhaven, it's time for me to enroll in school, right? It's uh, it's something you would have to have an entire quest, like ordeal of trying to find someone who could even teach you before you could even begin to learn, or you're you're off on your own finding magical texts. I mean, imagine you find out you have these abilities, and the only way that you can figure out how to do them is just trial and error. I mean, that's that's so crazy, and that's kind of where we're at before people start taking education and formalizing it for magic users. Yeah, the first mages
1: had to learn just like Kayla did. And Jarsil brightened too, right? The prospect of going to find this new school, you know, somewhere in North Dominaria is just like, it. it I, I quote, it's like a weight just lifts from his shoulders and still tears sprang to his eyes. Kayla stood and rounded the table to Jarsil, gathering him up Into an embrace. My boy, she whispered, squeezing him tight. You and I have different stories. Mine might be ending, but
0: yours is about to begin. Ultimately, the two bid their farewells. Jarsil to his new school, and Kayla, she takes a boat down to the river to head west to find the truth about her son Harbin. Her journey takes her through her homeland of Krug. Now, Krug, as far as we had known it from Kayla, it was a city of her youth that had been decimated in the Brothers' War. She had to escape many years ago and hasn't really seen it since. And Natalie, can you give us the description of the city now? Its proud stone towers had all but crumbled, save for a handful of hollow monoliths
1: that were now home only to nesting birds. These lone sentinels of the lake remained the tallest structures in Krug, but were not seen as part of the new city that sprawled there. Krug, after the cataclysm, was a midden heap of buildings and walkways that huddled atop one another, built above the water on a forest of stilts. Everything in the city was devoted to one of two things, harvesting the bounty of the lake or riding up and down the river to add coins, captives, and salvage, to the
0: wealth of warlord Fask, the tyrant of Krug. Okay, well, that sounds ominous. The tyrant of Krug does not sound like he's a good dude.
1: Yeah, Kayla remarks that a warlord had actually once ruled Krug, and she's unsurprised now that after the cataclysm, a warlord has now assumed power here once again. And basically, this warlord is empowered due to brute strength. He's taken advantage of the wake of the war and assumed leadership here because Kayla, the queen, had left years ago. Now we switch to Fask's perspective for the next little while, leaving behind Kayla after noting, quote, she was free.
0: Okay, so Fask, who, again, is um, the tyrant of Krug, he wakes up in the middle of the night to noises in his room. For the past little while, he's been hearing voices. He's been hearing bumps. And he tries to talk himself out of being afraid this night. Uh, But after multiple bumps happen, he's like, no, there is a noise at my bedside. Something is impossibly getting past this very elaborate system of alarms and guards that he set up. So he's been hearing voices and hearing bumps in the night. Like, he's so convinced that it's really happening that he has like taken like string and hung up tinsel and forks and other metal things that will clack together if a sound happens in his room because he's convinced that something is after him Whether and no one else can seem to like hear this thing or see this thing. And so he's actually an interesting thing about Fask is that Someone at some
1: point earlier in his life had basically said that something was going to come for him one day. So he thinks that this thing, this thing that he's hearing in his room, is actually going to be the thing that was prophesied to come back and get him. Right. And so that's where his paranoia is
0: coming from. And he just loses it. Like he starts screaming and crying on the floor, thinking he's going to die, terrified of this ghost who just appeared in his room because, yeah, he actually saw a disembodied, like, upper half at the end of his bed, and he just completely freaks out. And this is how his guards find him, just absolutely on the ground crying about something they can't see and they can't hear. And weirdly, turns out, the ghost is Teferi. Wait, what? That's exactly what I said. That is exactly what I said when I read it. So, at the end of Track 2, Episode 1, Teferi has stepped into the Temporal Anchor, the time machine in Urza's tower, and it's taken back in time to this moment with Fask in his room. So, so just I'm,
1: exactly this moment. Yes. For it with Fask the warlord. Yes. That's where the temporal anchor took to Ferry.
0: Is to this guy's room who thinks he's being haunted by ghosts already. He accidentally shows him basically like ghost form of himself and scares this guy into absolute insanity. Uh to the point Oops. where <laughs> he is no longer the tyrant of Krug after this, which is hilarious. Like what a hilarious side effect. Of using your magic. So apparently, the anchor was malfunctioning, and Teferi is, you know, he immediately asks, like, to be pulled out. But the appearance of the ghost becomes quite a story for Fask and the city. It's passed down in legend. And the episode ends with this quote Many centuries later, an ancient man regaled his grandchildren with the story of that night. He spoke for them of the strife that followed the kingdoms that rose and fell because of a ghost, and the importance of omens and magic. None of his grandchildren thought his tale anything more than just a story, but they loved the faces and sounds their grandfather would make when telling it, and so they asked for it often. Stories kept spirits high during the bitterly cold nights on the glaciers of Teresir. The Ice Age was upon Dominaria, and though these grandchildren all went on to live long lives and recount various versions of the story to their own dynasties, none of them outlived the ice, and neither did the story of the tyrant. And the ghost. So
1: it's interesting, Harless, that you mentioned the Ice Age on Dominaria. And that is incredibly iconic for Magic's history. It's, it's, yeah. The Ice Age is actually one of the very first sets that was ever released in Magic's history. I think it released in like 1995. Don't quote me on that. But it, like, it was within (laughs) the first couple of years of Magic actually being a thing. And it was iconic. The art in, Ice Age, the actual magic set, actually details features of Dominaria all covered in ice, right. And so it's it's really interesting to me that we actually get to see it come to life, right Like it's we literally see this incredibly iconic phase in Dominarian history literally like the the cold, the the volcanoes of ice that Kayla's people were experiencing that was literally the ice age the ice age coming to dominaria it's a, it's such a cool thing to actually see it happen right it's it's a moment in history in dominarian history books right but it was really it was it was a totally different thing to see it actually be there in the
0: moment of when the ice age actually happened right because you know natalie and i both started um playing magic around the same time like within a year or two of each other and so 1990s magic is not something that we ever played. However, because we work for Wizards of the Coast and we love magic so much, we always get to look back on old sets. And it's really fun to look at, you know, old cards on the internet and, and just see, like, what, what we made before, you know, this current iteration of magic. And the Ice Age, like you said, is so iconic. And so if you have a few minutes um, or, you know, you, you just want to kill some time, Definitely check out some of the cool Ice Age art. Um, But, you know, we told the Brothers War initially in the 90s. Now we're retelling that story from a completely different perspective and from the perspective of the people who were impacted by the war, not just the brothers themselves. And it's so cool to see it flowing through the present day story that we're telling. Um, But giving us so much more insight into it, it's really, really fascinating. Yeah, there's so much more emotion tied to the Ice Age now,
1: right? Because we got to see Kayla's story and how it was so impactful to her and the people of Pentagon. And, you know, like the Ice Age is not just a a quote in the Dominarian history books. It it was a true event that really impacted these characters, you know, and um, it was. it's such an incredible retelling to to be able to give emotional context to over the Ice Age and how important it was.
0: It puts into perspective the fact that the Brothers Were caused the Ice Age. Uh, an ent- it caused an entire Ice Age on this plane. Like, that's how powerful and destructive the Brothers Were was. You know, in season one, we, we saw, I think it was a dragon engine that ripped up uh, a bunch of trees in Yavamaya. Look at what the, like, Look at what the machines that Urza made at their full force did. They caused an entire Ice Age. That is crazy. That is bonkers bananas.
1: And it's interesting, Harless, that you mentioned. So just a little fun fact for, for the uh, magic buffs out there who have been paying attention. So you mentioned the dragon engine that we saw in season one. And the dragon engine attacked the Yavimayan the Yav- elves. So I'm taking yeah. you back in time really quickly to that scene in season one. I believe it was episode four. If you want to go back and re-listen out there, Joda and Miria are fighting against this dragon engine in Krug, the ruins of Krug. So that was Kayla's wow. homeland. Wow. So if if Krug was ringing any bells to you all, good job. That's because, why because it's the same
0: place. Oh my gosh, I didn't even put that together. So we have track two to talk about today as well, which is super exciting. So again, just to recap the season. We are telling you track one and track two at with episode one in the same podcast episode, episode two in the same podcast episode, et cetera, so that you can get the full effect. And these stories really are meant to be read that way. And that's how we release them on the web uh, when we release these in web fiction. Um, but so if you are going back and reading them on your own, please read track one, episode one, then track one, two, episode one, then track one, episode two, then track two, episode two, et cetera. All right. So episode two is called Antiquities, and it is written by Reinhardt Suarez. Now, remember that track two takes place in the present time on Dominaria, following our Planeswalker friends as they fight against the new Phyrexian threat. Last episode, we were introduced to a lot of new characters. We met Kaya, Renan-7, Sahili, Elspeth, and Vivian, just to name a few. So I definitely recommend you listen to the previous episode to get caught up on who we're talking about. And all these Planeswalkers, including Teferi and Joda, are stationed in Urza's tower trying to unravel the secrets of the past and how the Phyrexians were defeated many thousands of years ago. They all have concluded what the Phyrexians' ultimate plan is. Elish Norn plans to use the World Tree in order to unify the entire multiverse under her command. In other words, we are days away from Elish Norn and the Phyrexians having complete dominion over the entire multiverse. This plan of Teferi is better work. That's all I right? got say. Right?
1: <laughs> a lot is weighing on this Teferi. Like, if they don't find the secret, they're doomed. Like, this is this is the end of the multiverse as we know it. Like, quite literally. Like, I, I don't say that to be dramatic. I say that because we are seeing a, a threat
0: that none of our planeswalkers have ever seen before. Okay, so if you remember from just earlier in this episode, the anchor was malfunctioning. Kaya and Sahili had to pull Teferi out. And Sahili sets to work right away on figuring out what went wrong.
1: Okay, so Sahili, if you kind of remember from episode six in this podcast, just this last episode, she is an absolute genius artificer. Okay, she is a incredibly gifted, incredibly smart. She's so good and she's so artistic about what she creates. And on top of this, she is a genuinely warm and friendly and clever and compassionate person. And she has true mastery of her magic. If you remember, she just completely recreated the Silex. No big deal, right? Like a complete replica that is exquisitely beautiful. And she's also, we get to know Sahili really well in this episode, and there is a keenness to her about rising up to new challenges, right? Of knowing new things. And she just like absorbs new information like a sponge and everything is so fascinating to her. And the temporal anchor that she's working on is like a massive puzzle that she is wrestling through. And this contraption is actually using the moon silver key in order to manipulate time and separate the soul from the body. So it can't interfere with past events. And that's why it was malfunctioning because Teferi was actually becoming an actual entity in the past and scared the living daylights out of
0: Fast the Warlord. (laughs) um, Creating a fantastic legendary story for (laughs) generations to come. (laughs) Unintentionally.
1: So um, Harless, like I mentioned this Moonsilver Key. What is the Moonsilver Key for those of you getting caught up?
0: So in the story, Sahili actually uh, really casts the Moonsilver Key to the side when it comes up as just saying it's just a component for her artifact that she's creating. Like it's a It's a cog in her machine. But I want to tell you what the Moon Silver Key is because I think it's very interesting. So the Plane of Innistrad is our gothic horror plane here in Magic. It happens to be my favorite plane. I love it so much. You think quintessential gothic horror. We've got vampires. We've got werewolves. We've got ghosts. We've got all sorts of really fun stuff uh, on on this plane. Now, the last time we were there, there was a back-to-back set, one called Midnight Hunt. And then the follow up called Crimson Bow. Now, Midnight Hunt was all about the balance of day and night needing to be restored on Innistrad. The creatures of the nighttime were figuring out how to make the night consume more and more of the day. And they wanted, and the you know, creatures of light and goodness. were like, hey, no, we can't be doing this. We have humans still have to live. So there's this very powerful witch on Innistrad called Catilda, and she had found this artifact called the Moonsilver Key that was used to operate a bigger artifact called the Celestis. And the Celestis was what they had hoped would restore the day-night balance to Innistrad. Now, that didn't happen exactly that way. You'll have to go read the story. It is also on mtgstory.com. It's um, Innistrad. You're going to want to look for a Midnight Hunt. Read that one first and then go read Crimson Vow if you want to know more. But that fantastic is a fantastic story. Yeah, oh, it's so good. I love it. Anyway, back to Dominaria. Somehow the Moonsilver Key, somehow we know is because Teferi was there on Innistrad as well. But Teferi has brought the Moonsilver Key here to help as well. So it's just another extremely powerful artifact that's going to help them mess with time, essentially.
1: So Sahili tests the anchor again. And this time, when she tests it, a hostile spirit takes form and actually comes to them in this workshop in Urza's tower. And Kaya, the ghost assassin who has spent her entire adult life hunting ghosts, recognizes it as a ghost right away.
0: Now during this episode there are flashbacks of Sahili's life back on Kaladesh years ago. We flashback to this time in her life where this group of men have captured her and tied her to a chair in a room. And the leader of this group of men is Gonti. That's G-O-N-T-I. This is a renowned criminal in her city and Gonti is an etherborn. So Basically an etherborn is a humanoid creature made from ether. So they basically get to draw life essence from other humans, other living things, uh which cre- which allows them to continue living. So ether of course is a substance of the blind eternities, which is the uninhabitable place between planes. So we talked about that before when we talked about why the Phyrexians should not be able to travel through there cuz they should be basically decimated when, we, when they get there. Now, I'll quote this as well to give you a little bit more insight into Etherborn. She'd seen Etherborn's skin up close before, finding it to have the look and feel of smooth chalk. But that's not what she saw under Gonti's shirt. Their flesh had the look of cracked stone, hard and strong, and embedded in their chest was a metal device made of rotating gears. Thoughts? They asked. Yes, she had thoughts. There had always been conjecture on just who Ganti was since their reign over Jirapur's underworld had lasted well longer than the Etherborn's lifespan. Now she had the answer. So Gonti, this Etherborn human, demands that Sahili fix them as the device keeping them alive was beginning to malfunction. And, to make matters worse, they say they have Sahili's family captive and will hurt them if she doesn't fix them. So... We go,
1: we return back to Urza's Tower and all of our planeswalkers working on the temporal anchor. And Kaya and Sahili tell Joda what they saw with the ghost appearing um, while they were trying to work on the anchor. And while this ghost had appeared in the workshop, an orb had begun to glow and basically tore the anchor apart. Some some sort of powerful orb artifact thing that actually Sahili remarks, she had kind of just tossed aside because she didn't know what this orb did. Like it was just this random orb sitting in the workshop and she's like-
0: Again, okay, another don't. part for her artifact. Like it doesn't matter. It's just a cog to her, even though it's yeah. just like massively powerful- piece of artificery (laughs) she didn't give it two thoughts
1: right she's just like i'll just you know shove this orb aside and and not think about it it's it's a thing that's just there um and but when the ghost appeared so the orb had never done anything before it never reacted to anything before but suddenly as soon as the ghost had appeared the orb began to glow and tore this anchor apart like the magic the kind of like Sahili's. Very delicate threads of artificing had been torn apart from this orb. And so Sahili and Kaya go to tell Joda all of this. And when Joda sees it, he suspects that it might have something to do with Urza. But why would he just think that? So it's revealed here that Urza is actually Joda's ancestor.
0: I did not know that. It didn't say anything about that in, in Dominaria, which is the story we started on. And he's in that whole story pretty much. And I had no idea. Yep. So Jodah is Urza's,
1: you know, great, 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 great grandchild by many, many thousands of generations, right? Um and Joda reads the script on the orb. It's like starting to glow with this script on it, and it's only Joda can read it, right? Because he's a
0: Joda, of course. Because it's an ancient Thrawn language, and of course he was probably alive when you know, like with the Thrawn and communicated with them or something crazy like that. But of course he can read it. And Sahili had actually seen it, but she dismissed it as like you know, you know how an artist would sign their work. That's how artificers sign their artifacts in this world and so she just dismissed it as like oh it's probably a signature and then he comes up and he's like oh no it's Thrawn here I'll read it for you because he's Joda.
1: (laughs) (laughs) and anyway this this orb says and I quote go back to
0: the beginning and greet me properly interesting interesting so Joda's response is for many reasons I'm confident that Urza is not the spirit in question as in the spirit that like, came into the room. As for the meaning of the message, all I know for sure is if Urza is involved, it's probably trouble. Kaya suggests they kill the ghost immediately, and Sahili, ever the kind person, wishes to speak to it first and find out what it wants to give it peace if possible. And I found that very relatable. I feel like I'd be the person that would be like, "Can we just talk to the ghost first? Like, I'm sure it has some unfinished business. I'd be happy to help. Um, You know, let's just get all let's get all the drama out in the center and let's talk it through, baby. Let's get you through the to the afterlife." Yeah, two (laughs) totally different,
1: incredibly benevolent planeswalkers. Right? We have Kaya and Sahili. But they have incredibly different approaches here on how to tackle the problem. Kaya is like the one kind of clenching her fists and getting her daggers ready. And she's like, all right, before this ghost can hurt anybody, because she's spent her lifetime fighting ghosts. She knows that ghosts can be a little bit untrustworthy, that ghosts usually have some sort of vindictiveness to them. There's a reason there's a ghost here. Um, And especially after Joda's saying, if it has something to do with Urza, it has to be trouble. Right. So there's some warning flags here. But then Sahili, I also hear that where it's, okay. why don't we talk to it? It's obviously here for a reason. You know, maybe we can give it peace. Maybe we can find out what it wants and settle this completely peacefully. And we don't have to kill it at all. And I hear both sides. Maybe we just have
0: to dig up some. Wait, maybe we just have to dig up some old ghost's locket and give it to them and, and, and give it to like their ancestor. And then they'll be fine. They'll be gone. But, you know kaya like you said kaya knows ghosts a lot better than that kaya is an expert in ghosts and so she she tells saheeli you know most ghosts linger out of vindictiveness and this ghost in particular has been here for years waiting focusing on this one thing which has made it more and more vindictive and more about it's you know it's unfinished business if you will than about anything else that had given it human quality but Sahili insists on trying now, at this point, Joda disappears on his own to go play around with the orb, see what he can find out about it. And Kaya and Sahili return to the room with the anchor, resummon the ghost, and set a trap for it, which is pretty clever. They basically act like they're just about to do another um, experiment so that the ghost will show up again. And lo and behold, it does. It returns, destroys the anchor, and escapes. Sahili immediately hunts down the ghost in the tower. And they find out that his name is Sharamon, And he was the lead battle general for Urza's armies. Now, Sharman is trying to stop them from restarting Urza's war machine. Sharaman explained that he had made mistakes in the past war. It's very clear that he lost family members in the war, and he's really steadfast in not repeating the same mistakes now. So he is just not going to let them move forward with this. So that's why he's here, right? Sharman
1: clearly had something to do with the Brothers' War, right? We're, we're clearly given that, and there's regret, right, where Sharaman had played a Probably a big part into the devastation that we saw in Kayla's story, right, in the aftermath of the Brothers' War. So he has literally lingered in Urza's tower, ready to make sure that the same mistakes can't happen twice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Kaya takes action. So as Sharaman starts to fade from view, she turns into her ghost form and lunges at the spirit, her ethereal form swelling into a wave of death. She swings out with her dagger. She parries a strike that only she can see, which how crazy to watch her fight. Like basically what you think is nothing, but is in fact a very... I would love to watch Kaya yes! fight. So she swings out with her dagger, parrying a strike that only she can see, then spins around with a backward stab. Sahili watched as Kaya dropped her weapon and knelt down. Kaya's lips moved, but Sahili heard no sound. She walked to where Kaya was kneeling and waited for her to rematerialize. And after this, Kaya stands up. She's visibly shaken. And she says, I'm sorry. He didn't give us much choice. And I just think that's so and sweet. And he didn't. Because you know. Kaya knew this was going to happen. She knew it. But she still heard Saheeli out. She still let Sahili figure try. it out for herself. Yeah. And try. Yeah. And I think that is one of the things that makes Kaya so amazing. Like she could easily have been like, "Listen, this is my realm, and I'm telling you, and you should probably take my word for it." And she would have been right to say that, but she didn't. She she, she didn't. Yeah, she let she knows Sahili is a is a kind of a softer person, which like yay for softer people. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. And she was able to feel like she at least tried, which I think is so important.
1: That's so important.
0: It, it, those little moments, right? They're in a war, and letting someone have autonomy, letting someone decide the fate of something, letting someone have a little bit of control in their life, um, is a big deal. And I think it's really beautiful that Kaya lets her do that.
1: And if there's one thing that we've learned about Sahili in this episode is that she learns by trying, right? Yeah. She she rises up to challenges. She's a very hands on sort of learner, right? Where she is able to actually work with a thing or see a thing like unfold, she's going to learn the inner workings of how it works, right? She's, she's a genius, right? Yeah. And that's how she learns her artificing. And that's actually like, now that I mention it, that's actually how she's going to get out of this situation with Gonti. So Harless, that's take right. us away.
0: Yeah. Okay. So back with Gonti, so, so this is, again, back in the past. She's with Gonti, and Gonti has demanded that Sahili fix their uh, mechanism that is keeping them alive because it's malfunctioning. So Sahili really has no choice but to help Gonti by fixing their heart. And much to her own annoyance, she is actually thrilled with the device that's keeping Gonti alive. Gonti had kind of teased her about it earlier, like, I know you want to, like, she comes in, Gonti, like, just unbuttons their shirt and is like, here's my really amazingly beautiful um, mechanism keeping me alive. Uh, which is really, really cool. So, essentially, this device pulls ether directly out of the atmosphere and pulses it through Gonti's body, similar to how a heart pumps blood. So, because they're ether born, this constant flow of ether has essentially made Gonti immortal, and Sahili Sik- can't help but marvel at the device. And so, she's a little annoyed with herself. It's kind of hard not to marvel at a device
1: like that. Like, that's that's incredible machinery, right? That and no
0: wonder Gonti has been around for so long. And so she's really excited about work, working on Gonti. However, she's also incredibly torn. You know, she's being forced to help a criminal, a person responsible for so much death, violence and displacement to stay alive. Because Gonti is an etherborn, they can essentially smell Sahili's emotion, which how annoying would it be to date an etherborn if they can like smell your emotions like, "Yes, I am a little annoyed, but it's not of your like c- can I just be annoyed for, you know, <laughs> So basically, they can uh, they can smell that Sahili is feeling a little bit of rebellion. She's feeling rebellious. She's thinking to herself, should I do something to make this break or not? Maybe not even that leak, but should I be doing this? I don't want to be doing this. This isn't helpful. And what can I do? And so basically, Gonti says to her that conflict is the natural state of things, even within an individual. And Sahili retorts, easy for you to say when you steal and kill for a living. She tells them, I wish we could live in peace without you destroying our lives. I mean, that's a pretty brave
1: statement for someone who is literally, as we speak, operating on a criminal. While, let us remind you, her entire family is being held hostage by said criminal. I, like, I just continue to love Saheeli more and more. Right? Right. She's,
0: she's so sassy. She's so, but in, like, the best way. Absolutely. Now, after she essentially tells Ganti what's what, Gonti says to her, don't speak of destroyed lives when she has no idea what that means. And Gonti really has her there. You know, Gonti is an Etherborn, and Etherborn have been persecuted just for existing, basically, for a very, very long time. And so Saheeli is kind of, you know, she's kind of forced to just go back to silence at this point. She finishes up her repairs on Gonti's heart, and they tell her that her family was never in any real danger, um, which, we'll take that or leave that. And then Gonti walks her to the window to look over their city and leaves her with this. My city. Beautiful, isn't it? We are allied now, but make no mistake. It brought its war to me first, like it did all Aetherborn. Instead of crumpling, I embraced its thick, spiny hide. To win a war, you must become the war. That is the way of things. Ooh. I just got chills.
1: To win a war, you must become the war. That is the way Ugh. of things. Yeah. Boom. That, <laughs> that resonates a little true for what's going on right now. Right. right? right? To win a war, you must become the war. And wow, I, I I don't know if Gonti is right or
0: wrong, but they have a point. Yep. Right. So back in the present day on Dominaria, they start up the temporal anchor for the third time. So we're back with the planeswalkers again. Teferi is snugly in what he calls the coffin, which is where his body stays, while his spirit is essentially separated from his body and sent back in time so that he's not able to disrupt anything that happens there. And the machinery is starting up nicely. Now, as Tahili waits for everything to power up, she thinks back to her time with Gandhi. She recalls the love she'd felt walking into family dinner that night and seeing all her younger cousins dressed in their spring dance costumes. And she thinks to herself that unlike Auntie, she had never given up on peace. And here's a quote But if those she loved needed her to, she would become the war. Ooh. Yeah. So we're starting to see like some
1: armor some plating. T- like I feel like this is this is Saheeli's armor, sort of yeah. is is she is kind of stealing herself for what she might need to do in order to save the multiverse. Right. Okay. She she knows the stakes are so high. So she's thinking back to the the ruthlessness that Ganti had taught her, and thinking that if she has to, she will embrace the same sort of determination. I suppose, like, is the right word, or the I don't want to say ruthless because Sahili could never be ruthless.
0: You know what yeah. word I'm trying to? Sahili has come to the point where she realizes that things are not going to be smooth. She's already seen what happened with. A Johnny with Jaya you know she is a planeswalker they word travels fast she's with Teferi she knows all of this it's scary but at the same time we're, we're getting to see the that other side of her and um, it makes me sad already a little bit to see because I want her to stay naive and open and loving and caring but as you grow up you don't have that luxury especially as you grow up in a war time and in a war zone in her case too so absolutely like this this gives me hope right and and i'm purely speculating
1: here this gives me hope that Sahili will be as strong as urza was and yet much much kinder in a way that urza never was
0: and yet as compassionate as kayla was yes
1: like yes, that's there's gonna be
0: a that's Sahili is like a combination of the skill of Urza and the compassion of Kayla. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So if you were wondering what the heck happened to Joda at the end of the story, I was too. Good news. We're gonna learn that in the epilogue, which follows Joda as he uses the Starfield orb, that black stone that Teferi had said. Was important to time travel that the ghost had come out of. So Joda laments that Urza had been into some dark stuff in his final days as soon as he starts playing with this orb. I mean, this thing was powered by spirit magic, which is what had att- attracted the ghost in the first place. So this is some dark stuff here. So already Joda's like, okay, great. What is this going to be? And again, we're seeing a planeswalker keeping information to themselves, which we have learned is never a good thing. Tisk, tisk, Joda. I Kiss, know, tisk. So, Joda is not being forthright about what he knows about the orb with Sahili and Kaya. So, he's already told them he thinks it's from Urza, but he has ideas about what it is. He's not telling them just yet. To his credit, he does actually feel bad about it this time. So, that's well, good. so did Karn. So, did Karn, but it didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Joda has this hypothesis pretty, pretty quickly that knowing that this orb ended up in Teferi's hands, it's very likely that Urza put it there in some way, right? Teferi is Urza's mentee, right? He knows Teferi really well. So Joda casts a very simple spell, which Teferi is known for using to prank people onto the orb. So This is a shock spell that really reminds me of those joke buzzers that you put on your hand. And then when you like shake someone else's hand, it like shocks them a little bit. Like it's not painful. It's just jarring. That's how Teferi uses the spell. I remember when I first fell for that <laughs>
1: when I was in like <laughs> elementary school, and some kid next to me in the cafeteria just said, Hey, could you click? Could you get this pen to open for me? And it was one of those prank pens where you like clicked on it and it just like buzzed the crap out of you. And it doesn't hurt, like you said, but it, it is just jarring. <laughs> and it's funny that we find out that Teferi has a little bit of a prankster side to him. I know. It makes me wonder what kind of a pupil Teferi was with Urza, right? He might have been a little bit of like a, you
0: know, a troublemaker. Oh, yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like he was definitely like, if not class clown, then like class clown runner up, right? Like he's, maybe, he's maybe not like loudly making jokes, but he's a prankster. I I really appreciate that about Teferi. It's really fun to know that detail because he's so wise and he's so fatherly and so thinking of him as a younger person is really fun anyway putting the phrase that was inscribed on the orb go back to the beginning and greet me properly together with the information about teferi using the spell to specifically shake hands with people joda casts that shock spell on the orb and it works joda is transported to urza's old cabin in the mountains not exactly though it seems to be a pocket dimension that is a replica of that cabin in the mountains now Joda immediately finds a tall bookshelf absolutely packed with manuscripts, diagrams, and more. Essentially, some of Urza's life's work, but it also contains Caleb and Krug's book, The Antiquities War, which makes me think maybe Urza was around in a more material sense than we've realized. Like that's a, just an interesting detail. I don't know what it means, but maybe that's it's interesting. We're learning more and more about Urza, so I'm like, oh, are we? We, you know, we've had some hints so far that he, Tano said he still exists in some kind of form. And then um, now we have this here with his, with Kayla's books there. So I don't know, maybe, maybe he brought them there himself. That's interesting. I thought that was interesting. So Joda is looking at Kayla's book and he is greeted by two constructs meant to mirror Urza's brother Mishra. And former companion Zantia. Now, what I mean by constructs is they're not real. He's created something that looks like them, talks like them, probably acts like them, um, but it's not them. It's it's just like a. It's not a golem either, really. It's just a construct. It's just it's not full of life. It's just it's meant almost two. like a mirage, I guess. Yeah, in, exactly. In this, in this realm yeah but they're but they're physical like you can you can interact with them. It seems like Joda recognizes Zasha as a former companion of Urza's, and Zansha tells him that she's only Xansha in her dreams. All that's left of the real Zansha is contained within the Golem Karn, so that's an interesting fun fact so Urza made Karn with
1: Zsha's conscience pretty much, yeah, like- which is
0: really interesting. Okay, so Joda tells them uh, these constructs that he's a friend of Teferi's, and they allow him to continue looking around the cabin once he kind of tells them this. So Joda realizes this whole place looks like it was Urza's failsafe in case he perished before he could deploy the Legacy against the Phyrexians. The Legacy, by the way, is a collection of artifacts that Urza created to defeat the Phyrexian Yogma the first time around that they were fighting Phyrexians. Joda tells the construct that Teferi will be by soon, and before he leaves, he asks if Urza had any final words for Teferi. Yes, says Misha's construct. Let us end our conflicts. We cannot afford to differ any longer. And that is the end of track two, episode two. Oh man,
1: so many things happening and evolving. I just, I can't wait to dive
0: into the next episodes. So to me, one of the things that's so cool about this, and you know, we, we mentioned it, but just to put it into perspective, this these are two different authors, right? So one is writing about this ghost appearing in the tyrant's room, and the other one is writing the story of how that happened. And they go together so seamlessly; it's really well done. I thoroughly enjoyed the story. I really loved the part about the about the tyrant of Krug. I just thought that was fantastic. It was. It's just the kind of thing that um you only get in fantasy. You know, it's so good. I and I, it was
1: and it was just such a well needed. Just a little taste of humor in this story that is so bleak and, you know, depressing and dark and gritty. And there's just so much seriousness and high stakes happening in the Brothers' War. That little bit
0: about you know, the warlord Fask is just going to stand out in my memory Oh yeah, for for many, many years to come. And the other really cool thing here is this is the first time on the podcast that we've explored someone sparking, which is how you get your planeswalker abilities. So she sparked into using magic, it seems like. I don't think that she's necessarily is, I don't know if she's necessarily a planeswalker, but she she may not have discovered it yet. Or she may not have discovered it yet, but she can use magic. And she, and it sparked from this like deep, Grief, which I found really, really compelling. It's so like heartbreaking. You know, she's literally laying on the floor, screaming. She has this place outside of town that she has rented specifically so that she can scream her guts out and no one can hear her. And if that is not just the saddest thing, meanwhile she is being. The person for the people to look up to, she's the one saying, "No, we have to keep pushing no, we still have being to queen. keep going. She's yeah. still acting as queen, and she's suffering this just like in this grief that's so intense that it has her laying on the floor crying and screaming. and so that really gives us a look into what can spark magic in. Magic, the Gathering, which I thought was really interesting, and I was really happy that we saw that. And then the final thing that stands out to me in this episode is just Sahili's abilities and her resolve. And we talked about that already. Sahili amazes yes. me. Yeah. She is quickly becoming one of my very favorite Planeswalkers. I love her,
1: and you get to know her so well in yeah. this in this story. You get you get bits of her past as to what made Sahili Sahili, and And just really what motivates her deep down. And like I said, I'm kind of getting chills a little bit in both the most awesome inspired way and also in a little bit of a... Intimidated way over her just over this this I mental know. armor of stealing herself. If she has to become the war, she will. What does that mean? I'm uh,
0: I i do not know. I don't think her friends will let her become Urza. I don't think her own compassion will let her become Urza, but I do think she's about to be tested. I yeah. think it's gonna be rough to watch All her of go our planeswalkers this. will be. Like I oh, a yeah. sense that what is going
1: to come on the horizon for our planeswalker friends, we are days away
0: from Elish Norn taking over the multiverse. And it's not even a clock where they know what time they're looking, the countdown is. It's a yeah. clock that could go off. It's a bomb that could go off at any time, at essentially. At any time. And because the war has already started. They don't know. They don't know when the Phyrexians are going to attack again, where they're going to attack again, how they're going to attack again, if they're going to have eight dragon engines this time. <laughs> oh,
1: gosh. Yeah. I, I hope it's, not. It's gonna be It's going to be very devastating when it does happen. And so I guess, guess we're just going to have to hold off on finding out what happens next with our Planeswalker friends and with Kayla and... The Tyrant Fask, you name it, all of our characters
0: <laughs> continues on. We have three more episodes to do in this season, so we've only just started. As always, you can find these episodes on mtgstory.com so you can read through them yourselves. These stories are by Miguel Lopez and Hart Suarez. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have, have a magical, magical day. day.